This episode of Scandal Water contains adult themes and descriptions of violence. It is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. This is Kirk from Crestwood, Kentucky. The perfect time for me to listen to Scandal Water podcasts is when I'm out for a run. Being entertained while I'm running helps the miles fly by. Welcome to Scandal Water, where the tea is hot and the conversation lively. Your hosts, Candy and Ashley, will discuss a peculiar story somehow related to the entertainment industry. This podcast might not change the world, but it just might satisfy your thirst for an intriguing tale. Oh, it's that time of day. Tune in and hear what the ladies say. It's time to bend your ear when the silver screen appears. Stories about the stage and screen and everything in between. So come on and join the fun. The curtain opens in three, two, one. Stories and scandal water. It's where you need to be. Stories and scandal water. Let's pour you a cup of tea. Good morning, Ashley. Good morning, Candy. I know that this sounds so wrong, but I am actually really enjoying the atmosphere as I'm looking out the window Aww. behind you. It's kind of a little gloomy looking, yeah. actually, mm-hmm. which I think is perfect for the atmosphere of the yes. episode that we're about to record. Yes, a little black and white feeling, maybe. Maybe. <laughs> yes. I have to say, I really, I really enjoy this theme, although, goodness, it yeah. is dark yeah it is dark this episode this in particular I'm, I'm gonna say this one was this was dark you know what since we're saying that let me just go ahead right now you know sometimes we give a little bit of a, a warning or a listener discretion note i'm gonna say this is this the most is discretion yes i have you know it's funny because i have a, a friend a young friend who just this week reached out and said that she's a listener and she's in elementary school and oh. she is absolutely darling by oh. the way but i'm picturing my young friend and I'm thinking, mm, this one's probably not for you, sweetheart. Okay. So I would say this might be, what do you think, PG-13, PG-15? Like this is yeah. this is one that... Uh, of course, you're not going to say anything objectionable as oh, far no, as I'll language. Oh, no, I'll be very delicate. the subject matter is very... It, yeah. I don't even know. Right, yeah. Just, yeah. it's... Yeah. You guys remember, of course, that our theme for this month is the true crime behind Hitchcock, four of Hitchcock's classics. This one is probably the most famous. Mm -hmm. So it's going to be a super interesting episode. Don't Mm -hmm. get me wrong. Mm -hmm. We're going to have a lot of fun talking about the movie. It's when we get to the true crime part that it gets a little, maybe not a little, a lot. Yeah. Dark. Okay. All right. All that said, I thought I would throw this question at you, Ashley. Let me have it. In a September 2022 article, it was actually on a site called Film Inc., Mm -hmm. I ran across this little thing called Rating the Best Movie Scenes of All Time. Oh, yeah. And in this little article, they identified their pick for the top 10 movie scenes. Now, of course, this is an opinion type thing. Movie scenes. Yes. That's the only criteria, just a scene Mm -hmm. in a movie. Top 10 movie scenes. And they listed theirs in no particular order. Okay. So would you like to take a guess at a few of those scenes that might have made their list? Well, I'm assuming because you have said it in this particular episode that 
the shower scene is going to be on that list. 100%. See, we haven't said the movie yet, but But also, they're going to see the title. They know. They know. (laughs) By this time, they're going to see the title. We're talking about Psycho today, guys. I mean Psycho, which is so famous. But yes, the shower scene in Psycho absolutely made it. Mm -hmm. What else do you think made it? Can you give me, because there's a lot of movies in the world, can you give me a little bit of a hint? I I would say, Luke, I am your father, maybe. That's a pretty That is a very famous scene. That actually did not make it some of these are uh, let me put it this way i think there's a nice range one of these is a movie you love that we actually covered in an episode not too long ago well there's a lot of movies that i love jurassic Mm -hmm. park the goonies which which the princess bride but we haven't covered the princess we have not let me share a few with you and then if you want to jump in okay okay one of the scenes that made it was the bike chase escape scene in et oh yes of course of course the why so serious scene in Dark Knight. Oh, yeah. That's creepy. Mm-hmm. The parting of the Red Sea in Moses. the Ten Commandments. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Okay. The head in the box scene from Seven. Not seen that film. Not planning to. <laughs> yeah, I figured. <laughs> you probably haven't seen this one either. The conversation when they first meet Hannibal Lecter and Clarice Starling in Silence of the Lambs. I did see you that. You saw the, that? I'm I did, surprised. I did finally see that. Like in the last couple years, I finally saw it because okay. I figured I was old enough. <laughs> old <laughs> I figured enough. I could handle it now. <laughs> yes, I never wa- But I was curious because it's one of the only films that everybody won an Oscar. Hmm. You know, yeah. Best Actress. It swept the Oscar. So I wanted to see it, but I was just too afraid of it. Right. Well, what did you think once you saw it? It was really, really good. I did not enjoy some of the camera angles. It was mm. too close. Okay. But that's nothing to do with the acting. I right. thought the acting was phenomenal. Yes. Okay. You know, that's interesting that you say that. We're going to come back to that. But okay, to finish out the list, they also included Carol Ann saying, they're here in also Poltergeist. Never seen. You'll like this one. The spaghetti kiss in Lady and the Tramp. Aw, that is sweet. The scene where the characters played by Tom Cruise and Dustin Hoffman are winning at the casino together in Rain Man. Oh, I've seen Rain Man and I would not have said that particular scene, but okay. Yeah. And the last one is Jack's death scene, you know, on the floating door. door. I'll never let go. I'll never let go. Proceeds to let go. (laughs) (laughs) He lets him drop. So there's the list. I thought it was fun, but I also, of course, chose that because that mm-hmm. scene, that shower scene in Psycho is iconic. Well, it is top rated in across multiple lists. You're going to see, mm-hmm. even though this was an opinion, when I Googled it, I would see other people's lists and they might be very different, but a lot of them still included the shower scene. I remember when I was in college, I don't know if the AFI 100 scariest movies, I think was the list, but at the time, Psycho was still number one number one or number two I think it was number one and I remember writing a college paper on with all the advancements in technology why in the early mid 2000s is Psycho still considered the number one scary movie or horror movie Mm. again I forget what the AFI list was but it was still number one why is that yeah what did he do what did Hitchcock do that made it still so iconic yeah that's gonna serve you well then in talking about this episode too well to go on with that thought the movie Psycho was obviously significant 
for a lot more than just that one scene, as you've pretty much said. Mm -hmm. Other lists did talk about how important it was. In 2007, the American Film Institute ranked it as the number 14th greatest movie of all time. Okay. And here is a quote from Newsweek. This was an article written just a few years ago talking about the significance of the movie. Quote, 60 years ago today, cinema was changed forever. That might sound hyperbolic, but it really is hard to overstate Mm -hmm. just how Mm -hmm. much of an impact Psycho had when it first premiered in New York City on June 16, 1960. It's shocking for the time. Yeah. Depictions of violence and sexuality coupled with its shattering of Hollywood storytelling conventions marked the beginnings of the end of the strict studio system and ushered in a new era where film directors became the key creative force in movie making. Yeah, it was more independent film. Yeah, it changed the genre. It changed the system that was happening within the world Mm -hmm. of movie making and it changed styles for filmmakers. It probably also changed the way that you advertised a film because he did those things like you have to watch it from the beginning he there were not allowed into the movie theater because a lot of i think back then you would just wander into the movies Mm -hmm. you know something to do i'll just walk in and catch the end of this and he said no you have to sit here from the beginning and also i think he said you couldn't say what the end was yes in fact i that's part of the research that i did you i'm not surprised you already knew that but we'll come back to that in a a little bit i'll give you just a little bit more detail about it but our focus today obviously is the true crime that inspired this Hitchcock classic, Psycho. Before we jump in, though, I'm going to ask for just a few of our own impressions about the movie, avoiding the true crime aspect, just the movie itself. Okay. Okay. Before we do that, if anyone is not familiar, I'm going to just give a quick summary from the Turner Classic Movie website. And then after that little summary, we'll just say a few things that struck us. Okay. Janet Lee plays Marion Crane, a real estate office secretary who steals $40,000 from her boss's loudmouth client, played by Frank Albertson. In a desperate attempt to start her life over again, Marion buys a car and heads out of town with the remaining cash. The audience assumes that she'll eventually hook up with her adulterous lover, played by John Gavin, but Hitchcock has other plans. When she stops at a barren roadside motel, Marion makes the acquaintance of its proprietor, a lonely young man named Norman Bates, played by Anthony Perkins. Norman, shall we say, suffers from a rather strange mother fixation, and he owns a large kitchen knife. Oh, gosh. That's in the summary? (laughs) That was from the Turner Classic Movie website. Dude. But it does give you an idea of what happens in the movie, I will say. Yeah, yeah. So just, I know you you haven't probably seen this in a little while, but Mm -hmm. what are just a few of your memories or thoughts about the movie itself? Well, I remember the main thing that I remember from it is the switch. Because you focus on Janet Leigh. You think Mm -hmm. this movie is going to be about Janet Leigh. And then about 45 minutes into it, she's no longer our protagonist for reasons that you will discuss. And also how underrated at the time, but appreciated now, Tony Perkins is, Anthony Perkins is, for his performance. When I went and I watched a couple YouTube little featurette yeah a YouTube featurette or documentary there was one I saw called Understanding Psycho the Uncanny by the channel called Is This Just Fantasy and one thing that they talked about is how Marion and and Norman are kind of two halves of the same like they, they showed a shot where she's in her car and she does this kind of dead on look to the camera where she does this kind of creepy
creepy little smile when she's made a decision. And then the end of the film, it mirrors and he does the same creepy little smile. Mm -hmm. And I saw another channel called The Discarded Image and they did Psycho, How Alfred Hitchcock Manipulates an Audience. And I may get, I may mix it up where I got what from what, Mm -hmm. but between those two videos, they also talked about how Hitchcock uses his camera to tell this story. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was just fascinating how he used the same shots for them. And one of the channels talked about how the name in the book is different. It's not Marion, but they made it Marion so that it sort of was the same letters as Norman. And when we follow Marion, we start with her and her lover, and then we switch to Marion so we know we're following her. And then when she's in the room with Norman, we now start to follow him. Marion leaves and we're now with Norman. Mm -hmm. So that's giving us a hint. This is going to be your new protagonist. Right. And and what again, one of the channels talked about, and I remember this, when the car starts to sink, there's a moment where it stops and you are on his side. That's how masterful it was in switching. So as far as what you just talked about, how landmark it was, again, not coming to the theater, the way he marketed it, the way he had a star in this part, Mm -hmm. that you think, I'm going to follow her the whole time. And then you don't. Right. Well, that's so interesting because what I realized, this has happened to me so many times, is it really hadn't registered with me that I'd never seen the full movie. Oh, really? Because you see so many pieces of it Uh and so many clips and it's referenced so Mm -hmm. much across your life that you start to think you've You've seen seen it. it. Mm -hmm. When I watched it, I was shocked. I had it in my head that it was going to be kind of that Drew Barrymore, the beginning of Scream thing, where actually the shock was going to be how quickly Janet Lee was killed and the fact that she was a star. I was shocked that it goes on something like... 45 minutes. Yes, 45 minutes. In fact, I looked at it. She did not reach the Bates Hotel until something like 30 minutes in, and she is not lying murdered until minute 49 was when when she is laying on the tile. Not blinking, which props to Janet. Yes, she said that was a really hard... I bet. And she would never take a shower after that. She only took baths. Yes, I saw that too. But that was a shock to me because... Because you'd always heard, oh, she's killed off early. Well, you have to you have to establish a relationship with relationship with her so you care that she's gone. One hundred percent. And we're gonna talk more about that because that was one of the changes they made from the original book to uh, the script. And they also changed her undergarment color. So when she's yes. in the hotel, she's wearing the black, and then when she's made the decision to go back, she puts on the white. One hundred percent. I was gonna bring that up because your ideas of what you were bringing out about Norman and Marion and some of the symbolic ways they tried to represent Mm -hmm. the good or the evil Mm -hmm. and that interplay between them when you thought he was innocent versus when you started to realize things about him yeah even those subtle clues like her undergarment colors changing yes they were so intentional about all of those things and they also made it clear that she wasn't it wasn't necessarily adulterous because he talks about being divorced and having to pay alimony right I think that's the case where it kind of you think she is and then it redeems a little bit like they want to be together but they just can't so it's Mm. not necessarily an adulterous affair but that's her yeah it's her lover yeah that was a good clarification Turner classic movie use that word but but you know I think you absolutely are right and I would say Tony Perkins, if you want to know like the level of actor, probably if this was ever remade, which I know it has been, but I wouldn't. If you did remake it again, Andrew Garfield would be the type of lanky, mm-hmm. sincere. It would be like casting Andrew Garfield as this person. Yes. Because Tony Perkins had that reputation back then. Yes. Of being this handsome leading man and he would not have been this kind of part. Right. Well, and you did such a great job of, of leading into some of the things I'm going to share from oh, the research. So let's go ahead and do that. I will say this actually came up in the the previous episode, but it was a little challenging to think about how to organize 
organize something this big where I we bet. are we are comparing a movie against the true crime. So I kind of ended up doing a little bit of a it's not a deep dive, but but a bit on both. So I'm trying to kind of balance that. So I'm starting with here's a little about the movie, and then we're gonna do here's some about the true crime, and then we're gonna come back and analyze again. Got it. When we're comparing the two. All right. So about the movie itself. And I know you know a lot of this, so you feel free to chime in whenever. Okay. But Hitchcock was fed up, basically, with these big budget star-studded movies that he had recently been making, and he wanted to experiment with a more efficient kind of, they use the word sparser Mm -hmm. style of television filmmaking. He ended up using a crew that consisted primarily of the television people that he was, from his own. Yes, exactly. Now, part of this was because he had a little bit of a rival in the movie Diabolique, if I said that correct. It was a small-scale, gritty, black-and-white independent film that had received a lot of praise. And so I think, based on what I read, it sounded like Hitchcock was a little maybe jealous, like, you know, Mm. I could do that too. Mm -hmm. So that was part of the inspiration, they said, was he wanted to show he could do the same thing. Okay. But except for some shots that were filmed on back roads in Southern California, for example, those scenes where Marion is fleeing Phoenix, Psycho was produced on the back lot at Universal Studios, which was perfect for him because that was where they did usually shoot his TV series. Now, he got the idea for this particular movie when one day his production assistant, Peggy Robertson, told him about a book called Psycho that had been written by Robert Block. And he said later, quote, the thing that appealed to me and made me decide to do the picture was the suddenness of the murder in the shower coming, as it were, out of the blue. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So he bid on the rights anonymously, assuming that if the writer and publisher of the novel knew it was him, they would would just get price gouge him. (laughs) Exactly. So he ended up getting it for $9,000. That's a little low, Hitch. That's a little low. Yeah, you you could have given him a little little bit more. (laughs) Again, we're going to hold off on the true crime, but just just to kind of say this piece, since it seems relevant right now, the novelist Robert Block, he had come up with the idea of a killer, quote, living in isolation with a religiously fanatical mother, end quote, on his own, he said. He had heard about the real-life murderer and body snatcher Ed Gein, and he actually mentioned that he had heard about that in one of the later chapters of his novel Psycho, I believe, but he has always maintained that he had not studied the details or studied what had happened with Ed Gein. He reportedly, years later, said that when he actually heard more about Ed Gein, he was surprised at how closely the details ended up matching. Yes, between some of the things that he had that he had incorporated uh-huh. into Norman Bates' upbringing and his childhood and some uh-huh. of the things that happened with him and what was actually the truth. He said, quote, the imaginary character I'd created resembled the real Ed Gein, both in overt act and apparent motivation. He must have really tapped into the psychology of that type of person. Yeah, yeah. And... A different article, this was actually Closer Weekly, said this, which was also a quote from the author. The Ed Gein murders took place in a small town 40 miles away from the one I lived in at the time. I knew few details, but the idea that a man could become a mass murderer in a little rural village where people had known him all his life but never suspected his activities, this immediately suggested a story plot. Psycho was the result. I invented my Norman Bates character, not learning until years later that what I imagined was close to the reality 
of Ed Gein's personality pattern. Once I had a clear understanding of my character, the book came easily in perhaps six weeks or so of what? actual writing. Can you imagine? Wow. No, I cannot. Yeah. So in adapting the book for the big screen... Screenwriter Joseph Stefano did use a lot of the details and a lot of the plot lines that were in the novel. He stuck pretty closely to it. But you've already kind of given us a little bit of foreshadowing about a few of the key changes. Oh, okay. The names? Well, names, absolutely. But bigger than that. Okay. He had to change the character Norman Bates. The novel version of Norman Bates was very unsympathetic and Mm. very dark. Mm, mm. This character in the novel was revealed to have some really, really strong and apparent bad habits. And in the movie, they wanted you to be tricked. And to feel sympathy for him. So it's more of a shock. You have to shock upon shock. Right. And this screenwriter actually had Anthony Perkins in mind a little bit. Ah. And he asked for permission to kind of lean the character that way. Ah. So they purposely made this Norman Bates character younger, more handsome, mm-hmm. took away some of those dark habits, or at least didn't show them right. in the movie. And they also developed Marion differently. In the book, you didn't have all the backstory. Oh. You did go straight into the murder so much oh. faster. It was the screenwriter and this adaptation for the film. That's where it happened, where they said, no, if we want people to care about this woman who basically starts out they make her seem as though she's in the middle of this affair and then she steals yeah. from her company. They yeah. were like, who's going to care right. if the audience is not going to be aligned with her and sympathetic to her right. unless they strategically get connected yeah, to so, her. Yeah. So he talks about wanting to pay off his debts and then the guy says, I never carry around more than I have, more than I can afford to lose. So she's thinking, oh, you can afford to lose this. Mm-hmm. It can help my boyfriend. We can finally be together. So that it gives you a reason why she did the crime, not just she's she's a thief. They also took you inside her mind and showed some of her angst and yeah. her anxiety. Mm-hmm. And then jumping ahead, they strategically gave us that huge dialogue scene between Norman and Marion where she's eating because she makes the decision she's going to go back. She redeemed herself. Yes. She's going to do the right thing. Come into my parlor, said yeah. the spider to the <laughs> Yes. But going back here for just a second, a fun side note, so many of the sources said that after he had secured the movie rights that Alfred Hitchcock, because he wanted to protect the ending and the twist, Mm -hmm. that he went and bought as many copies of the novel as he could to try to prevent people from reading and finding out how the book ended. But according to Turner Classic Movies, that is actually a false rumor. Oh, really? There are several things like that where you would see so many sources that would say one thing, and then you would see other sources that said, nope, not true. Hmm. So I'm going with what I saw the most, by the way. Well... The studio was not excited about this movie. It was incredibly controversial for, especially for this time period, the content, the things that happened in it. But Alfred Hitchcock, they usually refer to him as Sir Alfred Hitchcock, Mm -hmm. but he wanted to make it so badly that he agreed to defer his standard $250,000 salary in lieu of 60% of the movie's gross. Woo, that's smart. It was brilliant because he ended up making more than $15 million. Oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this is back move. in 1960. Now they, Paramount Pictures, you know, they were like, yes, thank you. We will take this deal because they thought this movie was going to be a flop. You fools. <laughs> I know. By the way, adjusted for inflation, Hitchcock's 15 million would be about 130 million today. Yeah. So he did just fine. He's doing okay. Right. 
well, some casting notes. Just a few, because I know there's a lot here, so you can jump in if there's something you want to mention that I missed. But I think everybody knows Hitchcock always likes to do a little cameo. Well, in this particular movie, it came early. It came within the first five or six minutes of the film. He was the man standing in the cowboy hat outside Marion's office. In a cowboy hat. When she enters, and he wanted the cameo to come early because he knew people would be looking for him. and don't be distracted. Exactly. Mm -hmm. He did not want them to be diverted from the plot. He wanted everybody 100% focused Focused. in on what was happening. His daughter, Patricia, played Marion's co-worker at the office. Mm -hmm. And then... For the role of Marion, a large number of actresses were considered. I'm not going to name them all, but a few were Eva Marie Saint, Lee mm-hmm. Remick, Angie Dickinson, Piper Laurie, Shirley Jones, which I can't imagine, wow. and Lana Turner. But Hitchcock, of course, did end up going with Janet Lee, and he really anticipated the shock for audiences that a star of her stature yeah. would be killed off so early in the movie. Like you said, it was that switch, yes. you know, he tricked them. You know, something I realized is it's just one of those little trivias in my brain. You know, we did an episode on Halloween back in October. Mm-hmm. We did one on Halloween. And then our next one was on Houdini, which was Jamie Lee Curtis. And then Tony Curtis played Houdini in a movie. Yes. And now we're doing the mother, Janet Lee. So we've covered this All little... All family. Yeah, we've covered this family <laughs> just within a couple months of each other. Just some of their iconic roles. Although we didn't talk about Tony as Houdini, but he did make that film. That's cool. Well, Janet was only paid, I guess I shouldn't say only, but she was paid 25000 which we're going to find out in a minute was less than Anthony Perkins was paid, oh. which I think I found that interesting. I don't. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if that's because at the time women were paid less than men. That's still, I'm, I don't know yeah. about at the time. It's right. still the well, case. Okay. Well, despite the perception by many that Alfred Hitchcock used only one real star in the cast... One of my sources pointed out, really, that's not true. A lot of these other actors were yeah. already well-known yeah. and highly acclaimed at the time. A lot of people will talk about Anthony Perkins as though he wasn't well-known, but they pointed out in this source that he was a fast-rising young actor at the time. He already had credits you know, on his resume, including... Friendly Persuasion from 1956, which had earned him an Oscar nomination for Best Supporting Actor. Oh, yeah. I think that he was a star. They just didn't expect him to play this kind of role. Right. Yes. Yes. He did end up getting paid $40,000 for the role, Mm. which again... I don't know, though. This also just really pigeonholed him. Yes, it did. Yes, it did. Yeah. Janet could go on and do other parts, but this just... I think this this role kind of haunted him for the rest of his life. That is true. Now... He was quoted, though, as saying, some people will say that it was difficult to work with Hitchcock. Anthony Perkins did not say that. Mm. He said he was treated very well from the start. He was quoted as saying in Closer Weekly, at the start of the production, he gave me a couple of hundred dollars and said, go and buy the sort of clothes you think Norman would wear. That kind of thing always makes the actor feel like he's a part of it. Oh, I like that. Yeah, he so he was involved in the role. He appreciated that. He said, in fact, you know, he was allowed to come up with new bits of business for Norman, like it was... It was Anthony Perkins' idea to always have the character nibbling on candy. Yes, yes, Mm -hmm. kind of bird-like. Yes, and he got a lot of praise and affirmation along the way from Sir Alfred Hitchcock. So Mm -hmm. he was treated very well, and that was something that he's made a point of commenting on. Okay. Now, Vera Miles was cast as Marion's little sister, Lila, and they said part of that was because she had that slight resemblance to Janet Mm Leigh. But 
she also had a whole history of working with Hitchcock before this. She had already received some good notice working as Henry Fonda's tormented wife in The Wrong Man. And then she was supposed to have played the female lead in Vertigo in 1958. But just before the shooting began, she discovered she was pregnant, which led Alfred Hitchcock to cast Kim Novak in the part. And supposedly, this was across several sources, he was furious with Vera. Yeah, because he really wanted her to be in Vertigo. He did and held it against her that she got pregnant and had to drop out of the role. She reportedly always felt that he punished her in Psycho by giving her an unflattering wardrobe to wear, trying to make her look matronly because he held this little grudge against her. Well, that's too bad. Yeah. Now, she received $1,700 per week, and I think she only filmed two or three weeks. I can't remember. Okay. Now, you mentioned John Gavin not giving the best performance. But he sure is handsome. He did look good. Well, he was well-known because he had been an imitation of life. Yes, I saw that. Yeah. Lana Turner. Mm-hmm. But Alfred Hitchcock did not like him. Aww. He did not like his acting. It's very wooden. Yes. And he did not hold back. He made John Gavin reshoot those scenes again and again until work with him then well i it didn't sound like he wanted to well actually here it is in my notes alfred hitchcock wanted somebody like Stuart whitman tom tryon brian keith cliff robertson or rod taylor oh rod taylor would have been great i love mm, rod taylor yeah but john gavin was under contract with universal so they forced John Gavin on Hitchcock. Okay. Yes. And so Hitchcock would literally refer to Gavin as the stiff all through the production. Yeah. So he was not real sweet to him, apparently. And then the voice of mother was created using a few different actors' voices, sometimes blended together. Jeanette Nolan, Paul Jasmine, and Virginia Gregg were three of the names I saw for that. Okay. Now, moving to the shower scene. So Time Magazine has referred to the shower scene as, quote, arguably the single most famous in cinema history. At the time, of course, incredibly controversial shower scene. It is actually only 45 seconds long, but it is composed of 70, 78 camera setups and 52 cuts. They built the set so that the walls could be removed, allowing the camera to get in close from every angle. And it took a week to film, which was a third of the film's shooting schedule. Now, some people over had said, you know, rumors that Hitchcock had other people help him directing that, but Janet Lee has insisted that he was the one directing every minute of it. And the Newsweek has said, quote, the frenetic montage disorients the viewer with the rapid cuts and close-ups of the knife, giving the impression you are watching Marion be stabbed. Mm-hmm. In one shot, it looks like her stomach is punctured by the knife. In reality, they it placed... never touches it. Nope. They placed blood on the tip of the blade and pulled it away from Marion's body before reversing the shot afterwards to make it look like the knife is piercing mm-hmm. her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Never makes contact. No. And there really wasn't... There There's wasn't nothing- much blood... Like when you when you see it kind of going yeah. down the drain, of course and it's actually chocolate syrup, right? And there's no there's nothing lewd. I don't believe, right? right? You don't see anything on her. You don't see anything we shouldn't see, right? Now Janet Lee denied for quite some time that she had a body double, but she did. Okay, yes, she absolutely did. In fact, so many people have said it, including the woman herself, Marley Renfro, who mm-hmm. served as the body double. She was a model and a showgirl who was paid four hundred dollars for her work, and Janet Lee, of course. Of course, 
did have to be in the shower to do a lot of the scenes where mm-hmm. they were showing her face. Mm-hmm. She wore mole skin, which was placed strategically to cover her while she was filming. And again, she did most of it. This, yeah. this body double came in just for certain shots yeah. where they would show like her midriff or whatever. Yeah. A little trivia note not related to the shower scene, but it's also a bathroom comment. This was the first time they ever showed a toilet. That was against no. the rules in 1960. <laughs> That's insane. And they show the working toilet as it's being oh. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They had to write as a plot point. Remember, she flushed the bits of her yes. little ledger down the toilet? Yes. That's how they got it in, because it was a plot point. We can't see those guys. No. Mm-mm. So time and time again, they noted that this was our first shot of a toilet. 1960. Yes. Now, the music was very important in the shower scene, but I'm going to kind of talk about the music together first. So we'll come back to that in just a second. Bernard Herman is the one who wrote the iconic score for Psycho. And although he did not end up receiving an Oscar nomination, his work on the film has been called groundbreaking and Hitchcock himself gave him a lot of credit. He should. Yes. Herman, Bernard Herman has said that he used strings only in his arrangement, quote, to complement the black and white photography of the film with a black and white score. But an an author of one article commented that it also probably helped that that was also cheaper. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now he made several contributions to the movie so he's the one who realized when Marion was doing all that driving that it got a little boring so Hitchcock himself was the one who came up with the idea of like oh let's do a little voiceover of Marion's anxious thoughts Mm -hmm. but Herman was the one who said let's also bring back the title music and talking about the shower scene Hitchcock had specifically said no music during the shower scene no No no, music Herman created it anyway good for him yes and I mean, that's what makes it. It is. I mean, he said he wanted the that shrieking sound. Yes. And he did it by having a group of violinists. He used the word saw. You know, they were sawing that same note over and over again. And I mean, I think all of us would agree that's what makes it, it so is. terrifying. It is. Absolutely. Yes. His contribution was so important that this was in a, a few different sources. Reportedly, when Alfred Hitchcock saw the rough cut of the movie, he was disappointed with it. He did Until not. Until the music? Y- yes. He, so many times we hear that yes he was supposedly considering editing it down and just gonna i'll just show it on my tv show and let it go because i he thought it was so he was so disappointed but then when he saw the movie and the score and especially with the music in the shower scene that's when he decided this might work after all it sure did and he ended up paying the composer significantly more than he had promised him for the job and very publicly was quoted as saying 33% of the effect of Psycho was due to the music. Absolutely. That's a compliment. It really is. And that's the thing about him. He can be, to the people he likes, he is so kind and so generous. To the people he doesn't like, he is oh, not. That's that's kind of what I'm hearing as yes. I'm doing this research. Yes. He either likes you or he didn't. And you knew both sides of that. Well, before we take our break, let's kind of finish up the movie part okay. so that we can come back after the break and talk about the true crime. So the movie, when it was released... You've already touched on several points that I found very interesting about this. Hitchcock did have quite a bit of control because of that deal he'd made. So he had a lot of say. 
about how it would be sent to, distributed or how it would be what the protocols would be in the mm-hmm, movie theaters. Mm-hmm. He was very conscious all the way through of trying to keep his plot twist a secret. He used different tricks such as leaking false information to throw people off. For example, in December 1959, the New York Times reported that Hitchcock was considering hiring Helen Hayes or Judith Anderson to portray Mother. So he sent that oh. little fake news out just to throw them off about that twist. And he would not let any of the film critics review the movie in advance. And as you've mentioned, he instigated this whole campaign where he would urge anybody who'd seen the movie not to spoil the ending because, quote, it's the only one we have. (laughs) Yes. And you talked about how they did the showings. He instigated this no late admission policy. Mm-hmm. As you said, before Psycho, movie theaters would play shows on a rotation all day long. People would come in whenever they wanted and then they would just like, if they came in halfway through, they would just go ahead and catch the end and then watch it until they got back to that part that they had started with. His What a weird way to watch I a movie. Know. I know. What a weird way. But what he did changed the way yeah. movies were shown. Now they we said, have a showtime. Yes. It starts now. He formalized the whole process of mandatory seating times in theaters which we still have today. In order to implement this no late admission policy, they would give time warnings like they do when you're like watching a play. Yeah. They had cut out posters of him that were saying no late admission. Movie theaters had to, you know, the owners of movie theaters had to agree to following and implementing the policy. They just literally would not let you in. That's amazing. You were late. And, and so, that makes you want to see it because now I'm not allowed to. 100%. And the, the movie theater owners were afraid this was going to hurt their business. And mm-hmm. instead, mm-hmm. audience members were lining up mm-hmm. like an hour or what more in advance because they were like, I'm not going to miss this. Yes. So people flocked to it flock to it. Initially, it took some criticism from the critics when it first came out, but audiences, as we've already alluded, loved it. And then the critics started saying some really good things about it. This movie went on to become the second highest grossing film of 1960 behind Stanley Kubrick's Spartacus. And it was nominated for Best Art Direction, Best Cinematography, Best Director, and Best Supporting Actress for Janet Leigh. The movie cost $800,000 to make, and it earned more than $40 million. Wow. And that's where we'll end when we come back from the break. The true crime. Ooh. Where do you sip your scandal water? Do you catch up on the tea while folding your laundry? Sitting at your work desk? Working out at the gym? With the new year, we are also ringing in a few fun changes at Scandalwater, and one of them is including more listeners' voices in our episodes. So send in your shout-out, telling us your first name, your hometown, and where you are or what you're doing when you listen to Scandalwater, and you just might hear a voice you recognize starting one of our upcoming 2024 episodes. Email your audio clip to scandalwaterpodcast at gmail.com. The voice memo app on your phone will work just fine. Cheers! And we are back Mm -hmm. to talk about Ed Gein, who has been referred to as the Plainfield Butcher and also as the Plainfield Ghoul. Yeah, this is the part that gets dark, guys. So if you want to skip ahead, this would be the time to do it. Although I will handle, I will try to be very delicate. You always do. 
Thank you. Okay, well, it was interesting when I started to Google this story that, again, some recent articles started to pop up. And it turns out that there is a docuseries that came out just a month or actually, I think it's been a couple months now that is about him and his crimes. Here is an excerpt from a Sports Illustrated article written in September that talks about this docuseries. Just a brief little overview. The original docuseries, Psycho, The Lost Tapes of Ed Gein. Lost Tapes? Mm-hmm. Oh, wait. Oh, no. Looks deeper into the mind of the notorious serial killer with audio recordings from the man himself. Oh, no. Gein terrorized the world for roughly 10 years with two confirmed murders, seven others connected to him, and at least nine bodies desecrated after Gein dug them up from the grave. Mm. Eventually, Gein was convicted of first-degree murder, then declared legally insane. In this docuseries, investigators, experts, and others all relive the horror that Gein brought to the world looking back at his crimes. The series features some never-before-heard audio footage that will send shivers down anyone's spine. Gein has been the inspiration for infamous horror movie characters like Leatherface from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Hannibal Lecter from Silence mm-hmm. of the Lambs, Norman Bates from Psycho, and countless others. Now, actually, a clarification is, while this Sports Illustrated article said that he was the inspiration for Hannibal Lecter from Silence of the Lambs, most of them say that he was actually the inspiration for the character Buffalo Bill from Silence of the Lambs, which sounds accurate to me based on what Mm -hmm. I've read now. Moving on. Ed Gein's crimes were also very significant in other ways. So a different article, the Boston Herald, had another little excerpt about this docuseries and they interviewed the director of the docuseries who was James Buddy Day. He is a true crime doc specialist notable for being the last journalist to interview Charles Manson Mm. and this director reportedly told them quote the tapes are recorded right after Ed Gein's arrest by Judge Boyd Clark who we show in the series. What was so interesting is that they arrested Ed and they bring him to the local jail, which is this small building in the middle of town. They just basically pop him in the drunk tank and don't know what to do with him. So the judge is called and he brings a little tape recorder as they're asking questions. This is the same time as people, meaning the police, are in his house discovering heads and all sorts of things. Mm. So you really get this window into this moment in history. Mm -hmm. So what happened is, these tapes that were recorded with Ed Gein right after it happened are actually called lost because the judge kept them. He put them in a safe at his home and then later a safety deposit box. And then when he died, they went into the possession of his family who didn't really realize what they had. Wow. And so they just reportedly discovered around, I think it was 2019, what these tapes were, what they held, and then recently decided to sell them, hence this docuseries. wonder why he kept them secret. I don't know. I think it's just what, like we talked about it during the case with the dark highway Mm -hmm. that sometimes attorneys or people involved in cases I think just especially I guess instead of nowadays hopefully they put them in places that are official archives right thank Mm -hmm. you but I think back in the day people would just sometimes tuck them in their own files or in their own or maybe he was so horrified by what was on them he didn't want anybody else to listen to them yeah interesting note that they now have these recordings which the people who'd heard them or the people who've seen the docuseries says it's very revealing one guy commented that you have in your mind this perception of what a serial killer who had done such monstrous things would be like. And he said, it's almost like Barney Fife talking about these horrible, horrible things you've done because it just wasn't lining up with, you know, here's this. Real juxtaposition. Yes, yes. But 
let's go ahead and go into an overview of Ed Gein and what he did. Ed Gein was born in 1906, and when he was about eight or nine, his family moved to a farm in Plainfield, Wisconsin. He lived with his mother, Augusta, who was described as being fanatically religious and very domineering. Also, his alcoholic father, George, and his older brother, Henry. By all reports, was not an easy childhood. Augusta reportedly tried to isolate her sons from the world as much as she could because it was her belief that everyone in the world, but particularly women, were evil. Mm. She needed to protect her son. She wanted to keep them away from the world and from women because she felt like women were very sinful and very dangerous and could lead her boys to sin. According to Harold Schechter, who was the author of a book called Deviant about Ed Gein, Quote, we know from Gein's confessions that his mother was a fanatically religious woman who regarded the modern world as a sinful, decadent Sodom and Gomorrah. She instilled in him this deep fear of women. Mm. So on this farm, now they did go to school, I believe, but they were on the farm most of their childhood. Okay. You know, but on this farm, they also had to live with verbal abuse from Augusta, was what many of the sources said, and also constant fighting between the the two parents to the point where several mentioned, several sources mentioned that Augusta would pray for her husband's death in front of her boys. Oh, golly. And then there was tension between the brothers because Ed Gein was devoted to his mother. Mm-hmm. He real, despite the abuse and the, the different things that might have gone on with Augusta, he felt that she was just wonderful. He idolized her. And apparently Henry was more critical. And when he would say things, that would cause tension between mm. the brothers. In 1940, the father, George, died, leaving the two sons on the farm with their mother. Now, by this point, Ed is in his mid-30s and he has never dated. According to that same author, Harold Schechter, part of this is obviously probably a huge part of this is because of his mother. Mm -hmm. He said, quote, she kept him very tightly bound to her. He was enslaved to his mother and she made all these efforts to not only keep him tied to her apron strings, but to keep him, I hope I say this word correctly, infantilized, like basically an infant. Yeah. Yeah. Infantilized. Yeah. His brother Henry was about five years older, depended on the source. But according to most of the sources I could find, he was also still single, but was still not as compliant to his mother. I he stayed around. Well, maybe he didn't have anywhere else to maybe, go. Maybe. I'm not sure. But he died too in oh 1944 dear. in a fire-related accident. Was it an accident? Well, okay. good question. Was the dad, and I'm wondering if the dad's death was an accident. They said that the dad's was, I think, related to his heart. And he remember he was an alcoholic. Oh, okay. So it sounded like that one might have been. Okay. But this is so interesting. I found the actual obituary that had been printed for Henry back in 1944. And this is another instance, guys, where what I found in the actual obituary was different from some of the rumors that I saw in all these different sources. So here's the actual obituary. Okay. Okay. I'm just reading this little piece of it, but it is talking about how the two brothers had been, quote, burning over their marsh Tuesday when the fire escaped control and required the emergency help of a crew of voluntary firefighters. At day's end, with the fire under control, the men returned to their homes when it was discovered that Henry Gein 
had not come in with the others. A searching party with lanterns and flashlights searched the burned over area and in the evening, several hours after the search began, found the dead body of Mr. Gein lying face down. Apparently the man had been dead for some time when he was found and it appeared that death was the result of a heart attack since he had not been burned or otherwise injured. Mm. Now it's interesting because that's the obituary that was published right after his death but most every source I saw said that the cause of his death was labeled this was probably later I guess as asphyxiation due to the fire Mm. but as we've just said over time many have come to suspect that Ed may have had something to do with Henry's death Mm -hmm. some wonder if Ed set the fire purposefully to cover it up well and that's how he yes oh yes yes right either to cover it up or that's he set it up so that that's then how he died now this is the part where I don't understand is this all rumor or could there be some kind of truth to this but several sources said something about Ed reporting to the authorities that his brother was missing but then when the authorities showed up Ed being the one to basically lead them directly to his brother's body regardless lots of speculation yeah he's missing oh wait I found him he's right here right oh here he is yeah regardless Henry's death left Ed alone with his mother and he spent a lot of time caring for her because by this point she had some very serious medical issues and she died in 1945 that's just like mm. a year later oh wow at age 67 from a stroke leaving him alone in the farmhouse and for the next 12 years he spent most of his time there the docuseries said he supported himself as a maintenance person and an occasional babysitter no 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 right no but when he interacted with the world to do those I'm odd just, jobs wait okay oh, there's this single now 40 some odd year old man and you're gonna get give him your child to babysit right guys i know i know but i mean this is the 40s and the 50s i know but still well and here's the interesting thing he was so timid he was so like everybody described him as being odd but they didn't they weren't scared of him they thought he was strange they thought he was quiet they thought he was weird they thought he was shy they thought he was odd but it didn't sound like they were scared of him he was a quiet man wouldn't hurt a fly Mm -hmm. oh there we go yeah the docuseries said that despite, this is their wording, Gein being known as the town oddball. Don't give your kids right? to the town oddball. That's right? just, I mean, I'm just, that's <laughs> off the top of my head. I'm, I'm Parenting advice you. 101. <laughs> yes. But no one suspected that, you know, that he was doing anything bad. In fact, here's a quote. This is also from that author I've mentioned several times. There were certainly rumors floating around from some neighborhood kids I interviewed, but this wasn't the kind of thing people would naturally suspect. And he was seen as very simple-minded. His criminal activities were so beyond the pale that no one would possibly suspect what was going on. Even now, decades later, there's nothing comparable to what he was doing in the history of American crimes. Okay, so here's how it all went down. I don't want to know. I know you don't, really you don't. But here you go. After more than a decade of every Everyone thinking he's living very quietly. On November 17th of 1957, police in Plainfield, Wisconsin showed up at his door. He's 51 years old at this time. Why did they show up there? Who? Because. Okay. All right. Because there had been a robbery at a local hardware store and the owner, Bernice Warden, this older lady, had disappeared. 
And reportedly, it's the son who had, now again, sources conflicted, but several said that the son had actually been talking with Ed the night before and might have even been in the hardware store and had put things together. But there was a receipt. People had seen that Ed had been in that store the night before and all these different little pieces put them together to go check his house to Mm -hmm. ask him about the disappearance of this lady. It's probably not him. It's probably all fine, but we'll just go ask and see if he knows anything. We'll just see if he knows. Due diligence. Yeah. Yep. Now, by the way, this house, apparently after mom had passed, Ed just let this go. No housework being done. I have a picture up in my show notes. When we did our episode on hoarders and we Mm -hmm. had some photos at that time, Mm -hmm. it looks a little reminiscent Mm -hmm. of that. But of course, it's going to get so much worse Mm -hmm. because of what they find in the house. It has been described as a house of horrors, except of course for his mother's area, which was untouched and had been kept like her little area where she had been was the same as when she died. It was like like a shrine, basically. Everything else unbelievably just garbage yes absolutely here's an excerpt from a time magazine article virtually every messy creepy isolated killer's home one sees today on tv and in the movies takes as its model the rundown detritus filled wisconsin farmhouse where in november 1957 authorities encountered the sort of scene that would reliably make moviegoers flesh crawl for decades oh. to come okay it gets bad here oh, well. gein's home was reportedly filled with his grisly handiwork a Upon his arrest, cops searching his house found noses, human bones, bowls made from human skulls, human skin used as chair seats, human heads in paper bags and burlap sacks, a lampshade fashioned from the skin of a human face, and countless other horrors oh my yes he was yes that's what he was doing but there's it's worse oh it's worse so basically what happened when these authorities arrived they not only found all these pieces of furniture that were made out of people was there was their face was it actually their like you could see their faces yes they found the headless body of a woman some it was either a barn or a woodshed depending on the source she was suspended upside (gasps) down like a deer no that had been gutted after a hunt and her head was missing that was their missing store owner Bernice and then again as they looked around the house they were finding all of these things Okay, this is terrible. I told you this is terrible, including a heart that was a human heart that was in a pot on the stove, which is why you hear people say that he might have also been doing cannibalism, although he denied that till the day he died. Oh, well, I mean. I know. I know. The authorities ended up finding parts of at least 10 different women. They could identify that they, they had... And no one was missing in their area? You said it was a small well, town, right? Well, hang on. Okay. Okay. They could reliably, because of the different parts they found, they yeah. could they could trace it back and realize they had at least 10 different women. Could have been more. The two murders... So they, they you know that, that they know they they them. know that he and he confessed to these they know that he confessed bernice she's the lady we've already mentioned they also know he killed a bar owner named mary hogan which had happened like about three years before this but had never been solved mm-hmm. he confessed to those and mm-hmm. some of the parts would have been from those two ladies mm-hmm. now reportedly mary some sources said mary hogan looked similar to his mother that could have been a motivation that he killed these women because they looked similar to his mother there was financial gain he did take 
money. Mm-hmm. So there could have been financial reasons. And then other, oh, this is so dark, you all. But um, remember, he was using parts. He was trying to create a skin suit. Mm-hmm. And, and reportedly, he had told somebody at one point that he wanted to kind of create like his mother's and crawl inside Mm. other sources said that he basically just kind of wanted to wear the female skin suit Mm. so it's more like buffalo bill yes very much very much but the other bodies all came from the graveyard oh ew yes he was robbing the grave reportedly he tried now this is one person speculating i don't think they have any evidence for this but one person speculated that he had actually tried to dig up his mother and Uh. it wasn't able to do so so, so then started to use go to the other graves that were around that area in fact here's what Harold Schechter said after that meaning after he tried to dig up his mother he began digging up other women their graves were kind of located in a circle around Augusta's oh so that's what he claims what he speculates the grave robbing had been going on for years before the murders occurred which could have been because like maybe these murders he dug them all up and he was out of people some people think that he was looking for other people who look like his mother um, and he'd run out if... of bodies. Other people said, no, these were instigated by opportunity, finance, something else. But Well, I'm thinking back to what you told us about how his mom told the boys that all women are evil. So maybe he's just clearing out the air- area around his mom. Like, I'm going to get rid of all the evil women around you, mom. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Well, and that's a good point because that's another reason they speculate why he might have killed the two women that he did murder that some people say that he had it in his head that those were bad women based on the beliefs that his mother had instilled in them yes Mm -hmm. in him he was arrested of course when this (laughs) when this raid of his house happened he was arrested but he was not tried for more than a decade because after they took him in they diagnosed him as being schizophrenic they pronounced him insane and instead of going to prison he was committed to a mental hospital but after about 10 years they declared him fit to stand trial and he was tried in November of 1968 he was only tried for the murder of Bernice and was found as we said earlier when I was reading that quote he was found guilty but also legally insane some sources phrased it as convicted but found not guilty by reason of insanity regardless it meant that even though they knew he did it he was insane so instead of going to prison he spent the rest of his life in psychiatric institutions where he was described as being mild-mannered unassuming a model patient Mm. although I did see one article that said that some of the female workers would comment that they felt very uncomfortable Uh, about about the way he would watch them yeah no couple of different people who interviewed him for books or, or, you know, worked with him said that he never expressed remorse for any of his actions. And he died in 1984 at the age of 77. Mm. Now, we've mentioned Harold Schechter several times who wrote the book Deviant about mm-hmm. Ed Gein. Another person who wrote a book about him, and I know there have been many others, but the judge who actually oh, presided over his case later in the early 80s published a book about him. Is it the him. same one that interviewed him? Those lost tapes or a different judge? No, different. Different, different, yeah. But just a tiny little quote from an article about the publication of this judge's book said, Frankly, I know of no person like him in the whole history of the world. Here was a man who was a murderer, a cannibal, a grave robber, and I don't know the term, but he took the skin of his victims and manufactured chairs and other things. Not even Jack the Ripper or that Manson crowd in California that mutilated all the bodies showed the combination of all these skills, if you want to call them skills. Yeah. 
And then as for Harold Schechter, he wondered if Ed Gein's actions were actually a subconscious way of, quote, taking some horrible revenge on his mother for what she'd done to him. So one last quote from him is, quote, for all the things inflicted on him, he would always proclaim that he had nothing but love and worship for his mother. But it seemed to be a classic case of protesting too much. Whew, mercy. So, you did it. I, I mean, you did a good job with that. That was that was horrible. But you could it could have been worse so mm. good job thank you armchair psychologist for our armchair i thought we would try to bring this together okay. because our whole theme is the true crime behind hitchcock's classic movies sure. and in this case it's psycho so what are your thoughts about hearing well it sounds like what they really picked up on between ed gein and norman bates is the unbelievability of the killer. Mm -hmm. So mild-mannered, sweet, mm -hmm. cares about his mom, couldn't harm a fly. That is, I guess, why people are still fascinated with this horrible, true crime man, because you cannot believe it. I guess in your mind, picture the one person that you cannot fathom being this deviant, horrible person, and then the just brain warp that your mind would go through finding out that not only are they a horrible person, but they're like the worst person right. you've ever met atrocities that are yes. just beyond your imagination yes and you yes. cannot fathom that that how that some sweet kind caring little bit quirky little bit odd no no they're wretched yeah yeah i agree with you to piggyback on what you said, I thought Anthony Perkins did such an amazing job with his acting mm -hmm. because I feel like in, in the movie, you were almost at one point thinking, are they going to be romantic? Yeah. Are there, is there like, is there yeah. chemistry yeah. between these two people? You Like, as you said, just as with Ed Gein, you were with Norman Bates, you were like, surely not. Like this, this person just comes across as being so sweet and kind mm -hmm. and, and very harmless. And your mind is going one way and then it... It is that shock of how, how could somebody who presents in this way have these awful atrocities, mm -hmm. you know, behind him? But, but again, I think the other parallel that I can't help but comment on is, is how they definitely had this obsession with the mother yeah. and the, the abuse and the manipulation from the mm -hmm. mother playing such a role in the way that this and this. the mother dying early and then living mm -hmm. by yourself. Yes, yes. One of the most famous movie quotes they said is Norman Bates, a boy's best friend is his, his mother. mother. That's one of the most famous quotes yeah. of all time, they say. Yeah. And that was such a huge part. And of course, it was so disturbing. I mean, obviously what he did, dressing up as his mother, all that. But even the part where they showed the room that Norman Bates lived in, mm -hmm. it paralleled to me what it said in the research about the way that Ed Gein's mother tried to keep him tied to her apron springs mm -hmm. and as a young child like almost like an infant mm -hmm. and you remember in the movie Psycho when you see the room that Norman Bates would have lived in it looked like such a child's room yeah. and you were like is this still his room is this still where he's Living. staying is this where he is mentally still a child under his mother's domination even mm -hmm. though she's been mm -hmm. dead for all these years yeah and that yeah. could also come with the grave robbing too because she was a skeleton at the end so mm -hmm. it, he just either he never buried her or he dug her up so that could be uh, a, th a throwback to that. But can you imagine the shock of how audiences felt watching this film? That oh. had to be also what he was trying to tie into. The shock of finding out that Ed Gein is this type of person is the same shock of finding out that Norm Bates was this type of person mm -hmm. and how the audience would feel. 
about that because it had never been done before. Mm-hmm. And of course, again, I mean, this is obvious, but thankfully they handled it in a much more delicate way. But that whole idea of kind of wanting to put on Ed Gein, wanting to put on his mother's persona through yeah. through the physical body. Yeah. But then you had Norman, Norman did ba- it through clothing. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. 100%. So disturbing. It really so is. disturbing. We picked this topic, Candy. <laughs> yes. But it made such a great movie in Psycho. Yeah, it did. It did. It, mm-hmm. Like in terms of, I have to say, you were your earlier point, how has this held up? It's black mm-hmm. and white. Mm-hmm. It's It doesn't have the same technology. It's not high budget. It does, yes, it's low budget. They use their television crew mm-hmm. rather than a, a very specifically trained, specialized film crew. All There's of those no things. special effects. Right. No CGI. Right. I found a quote that I loved because I don't know it to me it kind of went into the mind of Hitchcock a little bit but it also goes back to a point you made about his what's the word his mastery as a filmmaker so I'm going to read this little quote to you this was something that supposedly Hitchcock said when he was in an interview with a different filmmaker the public always likes to be one jump ahead of the story they like to feel they know what's coming next so you deliberately play upon this fact to control their thoughts the more we go into the details of the girl's journey the more the audience becomes absorbed in her flight. When Anthony Perkins tells the girl of his life in the motel and they exchange views, you still play upon the girl's problems. It seems as if she's decided to go back to Phoenix and give the money back, and it's possible that the public anticipates by thinking, ah, this young man is influencing her to change her mm-hmm. mind. You turn the viewer in one direction and then in another. You keep him as far as possible from what's actually going to happen. Psycho has a very interesting construction, and that game with the audience was fascinating. I was directing the viewers. You might say I was playing them like an organ. Whoa. Whoa. I thought that was brilliant. Yeah. That he's, I'm directing the viewers. Yes. yes. He's telling you what to think and telling you where to look. It's He's misdirecting all over the place, which is also why it's masterful. Absolutely. But I, when I read that, I kind of got those chills because uh-huh. I was like, there it is. That's the insight. That's what he did to us. And that combined with his knowledge of how to build suspense Mm -hmm. and then a musician you know somebody who knew how to create a score that was going to like you know elevate escalate that suspense to the highest Mm -hmm. level Mm -hmm. there you go there's the brilliance of psycho and then you had great acting of course right that's why he's the master of suspense man (laughs) yeah that brings us i think to the end of this episode okay who do we want to cheers man that's a tough one i mean obviously this whole month we're going to cheers hitchcock right so that's just a given yes so let's let's give it to uh let's give it to tony and janet mm-hmm. who portrayed these two characters so beautifully and that they're remembered for them Cinema- decades yes decades later history yes yes cheers to you cheers to you tony and janet cheers if you love what we do please rate and review our show or you can become a supporter by making a donation through buymeacoffee.com slash scandalwaterpod whether a single gift or a recurring monthly donation it would go a long way towards supporting our work and allowing us to keep the tea brewing at our website www.scandalwaterpodcast.com you can submit questions or your own story ideas access our sources and show notes see the merch we offer for sale and more you can join the scandal water community through our scandal water podcast facebook page or follow us on instagram or tiktok at scandal water podcast this episode was executive produced by candy thomas that's me and ashley raymer brown that's me 
It was researched and written by Candy Thomas and edited by Ashley Raymer Brown. A special thank you to Josh Martin, who wrote, composed, and performed the Scandal Water theme and other music. Matt C. Adams, who created the artwork, and Joshua Reith, who designed our website and provides ongoing technical support. As a reminder, this podcast is purely for entertainment purposes. The thoughts and opinions of the host during each episode of Scandal Water are their own and do not reflect the opinions of any future guests, advertisers, or clearly professional psychologists. Thanks for listening.